Well, we are really excited to be able to uh, offer that, and I would encourage any of you that uh, have gone through divorce, or maybe you have a friend or someone in your family or a neighbor who's gone through that, to invite them uh, to come and be a part of that and tell them that you'll actually go with them. A lot of times when people are going through some hurts and struggles, it's really nice uh, for them to feel like they're not alone, that they're going with that, and we want to be able to care uh, and love for people uh, during this time. Um, I would like our uh, greeters to come forward, and uh, we are going to uh, receive our morning offering. If this is your first time here or uh, you're new to the jar, we're not as concerned about uh, your money as we are getting to know you. Um, but we would uh, really want to encourage those of you that call this your church home uh, to give generously um, because we have such a generous God. So let's pray. Loving God, we thank you so much for the many ways that you bless our lives. We thank you that we never stand alone and that you're always with us. And I thank you for each gift that will be given today. Give us the wisdom and the knowledge to know how to um, use those to impact our community with your love. God, I pray a blessing for every single person who is here this morning. God, we really want to hear from you this morning. More than the music or the teaching or a video, God, we want to hear from your Holy Spirit. So would you come this morning and would you speak to us? We're open to hearing from you. So speak encouragement where we need encouraged, challenge where we need challenged. And open our hearts, God, that we might experience your presence in this place this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name for lives to be changed so that your name really would be made great. Amen. Well, we are in uh, part two of our Christmas series. And one of the very interesting things about the Bible is that we are given four accounts of the life of Jesus. And they are found in the first four books of the New Testament. And uh, in case you were wondering, this is the four. uh, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. But there's only two of them that actually tell us the story of the birth of Jesus. Uh, The other two don't refer to that at all. And so I thought just to give you a chance to uh, see how wise you might be this morning, I'd like you to turn to the person beside you and see if you can name the two books of the Bible in the New Testament that mention the Christmas story. We talked about this last week. So go ahead, talk to the person beside you. Okay, let's see how well you did. Now the reason I ask this is because our small group uh, meets on Mondays, 
And literally, we had only been away from church a little bit over 24 hours. And I had asked this question of my small group people. And there was one guy that raised his hand, and he was really adamant. And you know what he said? He said, I know what they are. They are Mark and John. Guess what? They're not Mark and John, okay? Totally the opposite. That is not what they are. They are Matthew and Luke, okay? Matthew and Luke are the two uh, stories that give the birth of Jesus. Now, Matthew kind of begins with the traditional Christmas story, with uh, a traditional way, talks about an angel and Mary, and it's kind of a beautiful story. But when we read Matthew, as we talked about last week, he doesn't begin his book like that. He doesn't talk about Mary or Joseph or the angel or the shepherds or the wise men, all the things that we like to talk about at Christmas. But he begins with a genealogy. He begins with Jesus' family tree. And it's kind of boring, to be quite honest. Because most of us don't know the names that are in that tree. Now, he just lists a whole bunch of ancestors, one right after the other. And the sad thing is, is that many of them aren't even heroic. They're not all that, that they're cracked up to be. I mean, what Matthew lists are some crazy cousins and some kooky uncles and some people that are grandparents that you're like, Ugh, why did you have to put them in there? In fact, in Jesus' lineage, there are some really, really interesting, colorful, R-rated, and as you'll see today, creepy kind of people. And the question is, why would Matthew list all of these messed up people into his genealogy? I mean, if you're trying to make someone look good, because that's what Matthew's doing. His whole purpose is to write a book that will connect people to Jesus, to let them know that Jesus really was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that the Father had sent from heaven. And so if you're trying to prove that to other people, you don't begin with a list of a whole bunch of misfits. I mean, you want to build a positive, rock-solid case. But Matthew goes out of his way to somehow show Jesus' family tree were not divine. They were not holy. They were not righteous. As you're going to see in just a second, they weren't even good people. So why did Matthew list all of these people in Jesus' genealogy? Well, Matthew realized something as he met Jesus. He realized that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. Jesus actually came from sinners. He was 100% divine, the Son of God. He came for sinners. But He was 100% human. He represented humanity. And so He was the Son of Man. He came from a list of messed up people who were his ancestors. 
Jesus came so that everyone, regardless of their past, could approach God. Not based on their self-righteousness and all the good things that they had done, but based upon the righteousness of Jesus. And Matthew understood this. You see, Matthew was a hated IRS agent. I mean, people disliked him tremendously because he took taxes and then he put surtaxes on top of that to receive his own wealth. But Matthew also realized something when he came to Jesus. That Jesus had changed the rules. That he had turned things upside down. To where everyone, regardless of who you are or where you've come from or what you've done, that you could approach God. But it wasn't based upon what you could do. It was based upon what had already been done on your behalf. And that's why Jesus went to a cross and he died uh, for the sins of all people. Because he did that on our behalf. So it is all about what he has done, not what you and I can do. Now, let me just tell you folks, Jesus was related to to some sinners. But not just any sinners, but I mean Grammy Award, Emmy-winning sinners. I mean, these people sin like no one else. Sinners that, like you don't invite to the Christmas family dinner. You know what I mean? Like you send out the invitation for people to come, but you just forget your Uncle Joe because he's a quack and you don't want him to come, right? Because he's got something in his past. And there's some secrets about him. And we don't feel very comfortable around him. Because he's a little bit creepy. And so I think kind of with a a grin on his face and a gleam in his eye, Matthew started writing all of this down. And he said, no, 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 no. Those are exactly the kind of people that we're going to put in Jesus' genealogy. Because that's who he came from. Shady characters. So let's go ahead and let's look at uh, a few, uh, one of these this morning, as uh, we go ahead and uh, look at it in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now it was really, really important for Matthew to convince people that that Jesus was a part of of David's bloodline. Because David was the star of David. You you see that even today. He was the man. And no one came to be the Messiah if you didn't go through David. So David was really, really important. And secondly, you wouldn't be connected to Abraham. Because Abraham was the father of all nations. Every Christian nation, every Muslim nation... Every Jewish nation came with the essence of Abraham being the foundation. So, you think, well, that's good. Matthew's writing. He's got both of these people in there. That's a good deal. Let's just stop there. Or let's just go straight to Jesus. But Matthew doesn't do that. He goes on. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. 
Now, if I were to ask you right now to turn to the person beside you and to tell them everything that you know about Judah, guess what? It'd be a short conversation, wouldn't it? None of you know Judah. You don't know his story. But that's what we want to talk about today. His story. Because he's in the birth narrative of the coming of the Christmas child. So let me tell you this story. Judah had 11 brothers. So Judah and his 11 brothers equal how many brothers? Whoo! We're slow today, aren't we? Okay. 11, and you add one more, equals 12. Oh, wow. Good. Okay. So there are 12 brothers, and they become the foundation of the nation of Israel. They're the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's where the name came from, the 12 tribes, these 12 guys. And Jacob actually has his name changed by God from Jacob to Israel. And one of these brothers was Judah, but he wasn't the most famous. Judah had a very famous brother by the name of Joseph. Now, just by a sign of hands, don't lie. Don't raise your hand just because the person beside you does, okay? How many of you have ever heard or know anything about the story of Joseph? Raise your hand. Okay, about half of us. Well, to be honest, I didn't know Joseph's story. I had never really read the Old Testament um, before I started dating my wife, Jennifer. I was in my early 20s. And uh, she kept telling me about the story of Joseph and that there was this really cool Broadway play called Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And here's kind of the, the brochure for that. And uh, she said, oh, it would be so great if we could just go see that someday. And I said, I'm not going to no play. Plays for sissies, you know. Well, eventually our dating ended and then we got engaged and we finally got married. And so for the honeymoon, I thought, I'm going to take her to go see this. And so we went to Chicago and uh, we went and saw this. And guess who was playing Joseph? Thank you. Donnie Osmond. And there's Donnie Osmond. And I was too cheap for real good seats, so we were like way up in the balcony. But the cool thing about that whole production is they lift Donnie Osmond up into the air, and the coat, his coat of many colors, takes the entire stage, and Donnie's like just dangling right there in front of us. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, you know, really cool. And my wife, I'm not kidding, is drooling down here. It's like, oh, Donnie, my hero. And I'm thinking, this is my honeymoon. Like if you're going to drool, drool about me, you know. Now, just to let you know that I really did go. I'm going to show you a picture. It's not a very good one. But uh, here's a a picture of us outside uh, on our honeymoon. And there's a little white dot right in the middle because I was taking the picture and I'm horrible at pictures. But that's my beautiful wife. And that's the first time, to be honest, that I learned about the story of Joseph. And 
It's very, very interesting that Joseph was Judah's famous brother. And because he had this very beautiful coat, and because his father Jacob went to him and said, you are my my son, I'm going to give you this coat, that all the other brothers got jealous. You ever remember growing up as a kid and you're one of your siblings, or if you're an only child, one of your cousins got something that you didn't get, but you really, really, really wanted it? Well, that's what's happened. And Joseph has this coat, and he looks like a stud, and the other 11 look like duds. Now, Most people know something about the story of Joseph, but nobody really knows the story of Judah. And yet, when you read the genealogy of Jesus, guess who gets mentioned? Not Joseph, but Judah. Instead, it's Judah and his brothers. Now, my hunch is, if you're trying to convince all of these Jewish people that Jesus really is the Messiah... Don't put Judah in there. Put Joseph. Everybody liked Joseph. They know about his coat of many colors. Put him in there. I mean, everything about his story is remarkable. He's an extraordinary man of character and faith. He was persecuted. He was punished. He was treated unjustly. You know somebody else who was treated those three ways? few thousand years later. And at the end of of Joseph's life, and I'm not making this up, it's actually in the Scripture, and we'll look at it in a second, he actually becomes a Savior. He saves his family. He saves Pharaoh. He saves Egypt. He saves the Egyptians. He is the perfect picture of Jesus. Joseph would have been the one that you would have picked for the family tree. And yet God looks down, and as Matthew's writing all this, he's like, no, not Joseph. I'll pick Judah. And Judah gets in the family tree. Now why in the world would Matthew pick Judah? Because that's the point of the Gospel. That is the whole point of Jesus' story. That's the point of Christmas. So the story begins in Genesis chapter 37, first book of the Bible. And what's kind of interesting is that from 37 to 50, it's all about Joseph, except a little footnote where we get this story about Judah. Now to set up Judah's story, we've got to kind of remember what has happened. First of all, all these brothers are jealous of Joseph and the fact that the father picked him to wear this coat. And one day, uh, Joseph is called by his father, because he's the youngest, to go out and to find the rest of his brothers. And so he goes out to try to look for them, and in verse 23, this is what it says. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. 
Now, the cistern was empty. That, there was no water in it. In other words, it's a well. There's no water in it. Now, look at these. Now, let's read this next little phrase, starting with as. What's it say? As they sat down to eat their meal. What? They just took Joseph, they throw him down, a mill, down the well, and then they're like, See us the time! Bring out the food! And they're all eating. And he's down there in this well all by himself. And they've stripped him of his robe and they're looking at the robe. They're like, here, Joseph, you like this robe? (laughs) Not yours. And they're looking at the robe and they're talking about it. And all of a sudden, one of them is like, do you hear something? No. And there's Joseph down there, and he's yelling for help. Who is it? It's Joseph. Joseph, shut up. Somebody got a chicken bone for him? Get a chicken bone. Throw it down there. They throw it down into this big well. And they keep on having lunch. So they sit down to try to eat, and they figure out, then what are we going to do? We got him in the well. What are we going to do with our brother? This is what the Scripture says. They looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So all of a sudden, here come some traders. And they're coming from Gilead to Egypt. And they're going to sell some stuff. And that's when we're first introduced to our character of the day, Judah. The scripture says, Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Judah's like, Hey, guys, come here, come here. What are we really going to gain if we just leave him down there to die? We're not going to get anything back. We've got to do something else. And all the other brothers are like, Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right, you're right. We've got to have a plan. And they're all like, well, who's got the plan? Judah, do you have the plan? Judah says, I have the plan. This is the first point of Judah's story, folks. He was the leader of his brothers. He wasn't just a side character. He was the leader of the brothers. Now, he wasn't the oldest, which is typically the way that it works, but he was the influencer of this group. Then Judah goes on, the Scripture says, Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him. Okay? There's a blip of mercy, right? We're not going to kill him. We're going to sell him. After all, he is our brother. Now, we won't ask for a sign of hands, but I'm sure some of you wanted to sell your brother at some point. And they're like, okay, we won't kill him. We'll just sell him. You know, he is our brother. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So here is Judah's story. First of all, he is the ringleader of the brothers. And secondly, he develops the plot to sell his brother Joseph. So they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites and they load him up and Joseph leaves with chains on his hands and his feet and he walks as a 16 to 17 year old kid to Egypt and is a slave. And from Judah's perspective, he's like, good riddance, bam. 
I don't want to see you again. You're always whining because you're the little brother, and I don't want to talk to you. And they're off. And then he takes all the money that they got for selling them and says, hey, guys, come on, let's distribute this. They distribute the coins. So off Joseph goes to Egypt. He's 16 or 17 years old. And then they take the fancy coat and they dip it into some blood of an animal. They have to kill an animal. So they kill an animal. They sell their brother. They kill an animal. They dip it in some blood. And then they do the unthinkable. They take this to Joseph's father and his mother and say, this is all we found. The animal must have killed him and ate everything of his body. This is all we could find. And we're so hurt by this, Dad. Not. They're not hurt by it. And they break their father's heart and Joseph's mother's heart with this secret. Because now there's a secret and nobody can let it out. And can you just imagine every single year on Joseph's birthday and his mom and his dad are there and there's an empty chair there and they're crying because they miss their son every time. And Judah goes along with the entire plot. He mourns, he grieves, but he never takes responsibility for what he had done. He keeps the secret. He covers his sin by lying to his father. That's part of his story. He covers his sin by lying to his father. So, That's where we're at. Again, folks, from chapter 37 of Genesis to chapter 50, it's the entire story about Joseph and who Joseph is. And then, just kind of like as a footnote, they throw in one story of Judah. Judah gets one chapter. All the rest of it is for Joseph. In fact, I I strongly encourage you to read it because it is the longest story of one single character in the entire Old Testament. No Old Testament character gets as much written about him in one setting than Joseph. But Judah gets one chapter. So, you think, well, he sold his brother. That's pretty bad. And then he lied to his father, that's really bad, but I mean, there's redemption, right? It can't get any worse. Well, it gets worse. It gets like a lot worse. His story goes on. Judah gets married and uh, he starts a family. And his first three boys, or his first three kids are all boys. His uh, first son, once he's grown up, he gets married to a woman by the name of Tamar. And then the second son gets married, but the third son is too young to get married. And the Bible says this, that the older son 
did evil in the sight of God, and he died. It doesn't tell us why he died or how he died. It just said he died. And then the second son does something evil, and he dies. Well, Judah is grieving the loss of his two sons, and he goes to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and he says, Tamar, I'm going to take care of you. Because custom and tradition said that if you had a daughter-in-law and your son died, you would take care of them for the rest of their lives. Or if you had a younger child, you would wait until they were marrying age and then they would marry the widow. So he goes and he says to her, look, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to cover you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to do everything that you need, Tamar. And once my youngest son gets old enough to get married, um, you will marry him. And you guys will have your own family. So Judah makes a promise. He promises his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, that she can marry his youngest son when he's old enough. Again, it's not our custom necessarily, but this was the custom of their day. Now, in the meantime, Tamar is grieving because she has lost her husband. And she waits for this younger son to get older. And it's her only hope of provision. You see, because if you're a widow in that particular culture, if you don't have someone to take care of you, then you are just thrown out. You're an outcast. There's no way you can make it without other people in that culture. Well, time goes by, and the younger son finally gets old enough to where he could marry Tamar, but consistent with Judah's character, he totally forgets about Tamar. He forgets about marrying her off. And this is the next point of the secret. Judah breaks his promise to Tamar. He breaks his promise to Tamar. Now, what you need to understand, folks, this wasn't a huge town. So it's not like he never saw her. But eventually, and maybe you've experienced this before, if you ignore people long enough, pretty soon you can totally forget about them, can't you? And that's exactly what Judah does. Well, some more time goes by, apparently years go by, and she can't provide for herself. I mean, a husband or kids are her Social Security and Medicare, and she doesn't have any of that. And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. And this is very odd for us. In fact, this is a very creepy story. But this is the way the culture was about 3,000 years ago. She goes and she dresses up like a prostitute and, dis- or, and dresses up and disguises herself as a temple prostitute. It's in the Bible. I'm not making it up. It's true. And she covers her face up and she goes out to the gate, which the gate of cities were kind of like the courtyard, um, like uh, the Muncie Justice Center, you might say. That's where court took place. Because what you need to realize is that Judah is a very powerful man. He is an elder of the community. In other words, he is a judge. He judges people in the community. And he would go to the gate and he would hear these cases. So she sits 
outside the gate. We don't know how long, days, we're not really sure. But apparently, pretty quickly, Judah comes by one day and begins a conversation with her, or perhaps um, she began one with him. And he doesn't recognize her. He doesn't notice her because he hasn't noticed her for years. Anyway, he talks to her a little bit and he decides to hire her. And they talk about it and they decide that the payment of their transaction will be a goat. (laughs) Don't you find that funny? Hey, baby, I need a goat. But that's what it was. It was a goat. Anyway, he doesn't have a goat with him. But being a man, he figures up some way to finagle it all. And they go somewhere, and he never recognizes her. And Judah impregnates his daughter-in-law. It's true. And after their little one-night stand, uh, he doesn't have a goat. (laughs) He says, hey, by the way, I don't have a goat. He said, but I'll get you a goat. Don't worry, I'll get you a goat. And she's like, hey, a goat is good, but I need something right now. Okay? And she said, well, what I need is your signature ring. Now, for you and I, that means absolutely nothing. Signature ring. What's that about? What a signature ring was, was an emblem. It was like the family seal. It was his signature that could be written for every legal document, and he would wear it around his neck. And he would use it all during the day. And it was like, this was Judah. And she said, I want that. He's like, oh, okay. And then she said, I want your rod, too. So I want your seal, and I want your rod. And his rod stood for his strength. Now, this is a big deal. Culturally, I can't tell you how important that is, but it is the most important two items that a person would have during that day. So what could he do? He owned a goat. I mean, he owed a goat. If you owe a goat, you've got to give something. So he gives both of these items away. And she leaves, and he leaves, and he says, hey, I'll get your goat to you, and I'll get my stuff back, and all that kind of stuff. And so he goes home, and he gets one of his servants, and he says, hey, I need you to go down to the gate. I owe somebody a goat. I don't want to tell you why I owe them a goat. You know, it's kind of a messy kind of situation, but I owe a goat. Uh, There was a temple prostitute. Well, I don't really want to go into all that, but just go down there and see if you can find one of the temple prostitutes at the gate and take this goat. So the messenger has the goat, and the messenger is taking this goat, and he gets to the gate, and he sees the other elders, the other judges, and he's like, hey, where's the temple prostitute that's usually here? And they're all holy and mighty. And they're like, no, no, no. There is no temple prostitute that is here. We don't know what you're talking about. Get out! And so he takes his goat, and he's looking around. He's trying to find this temple prostitute. Can't find this temple prostitute anywhere. So finally... He says, well, I can't find him. I'm just going to go back home and tell Judah I can't find him. So he brings the goat. 
This goat's getting tired by this time, you know. Brings this goat back home and says, Hey, Judah, I can't find her. Well, this is just a little bit embarrassing, you know. And the Bible tells us that Judah didn't want to make a real, real big deal of it. He didn't want to go down to the temple court, you know, to the, uh, to the uh, temple gate, to the gate of the temple, and to say, and have to carry a goat. You know, like his messenger just came. Now, he doesn't want to have to go down there with a goat and say, hey, where's the temple prostitute? I know you guys aren't going to, you know, like this, but I gave her my signature ring and I gave her my rod. And they'd be like, ha, 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 oh, you got duped, man. So he didn't want to go through all that embarrassment. So true to Judah's character, guess what he does? He just says, ah, forget about it. We'll just let it go. Well, three months later, someone runs to his house and they come to the front door. Yeah? Judah, guess what? Do you remember Tamar? I'm sure you don't because you haven't talked to her in years. But anyways, Judah, your daughter-in-law, she is pregnant and she never got remarried. Dun-dun-dun! Then Judah does what people do who hold secrets. People that hold secrets and pretend that they're something that they're not, they always do this. They become self-righteous. And that's what Judah does. Judah gets real self-righteous. Let me just ask you this. Have you ever met someone who is like really, really self-righteous? And then a year ago... Don't point to people. Some of you are... But they're really self-righteous. And then like a year goes by or two years go by and five years go by. But then eventually the secret comes out. Have you ever met somebody who just hammers and hammers and hammers on a particular issue and how horrible people who do this and what this issue is and they hammer it and hammer it and secretly it's not known but that person's been doing the exact thing that they have been so self-righteous about. It's human nature. Did you know that if you have a secret, and if you point out the shame about all of that, that sometimes it manifests itself in self-righteousness. Like if you've got a secret, you've got shame, but you're just you know, pointing it out with everyone else, eventually there's a self-righteousness that's with that. And some of the most self-righteous people that I've ever met, I like the least. Because when they start getting so self-righteous around me, I'm like, they got a secret. (laughs) They wouldn't be trying to tell me how good they are and how righteous they were if they didn't have a secret. Well, do you know what Judah does? Judah says, my daughter-in-law has shamed the family. And the scripture says, bring her out and have her burned 
to death. Because he's a man of power. He's a judge. He's an elder. And so he gets all the community together and says, look what she's done. Let's burn her at the stake. And you know, crowds are easy to form when you're going to burn somebody at the stake. Everybody's like, whoa, that's going to be cool. Let's do it. So they're all like, yeah, that's horrible. Let's, let's burn her at the stake. Well, I don't know how they would select the date or the time, but that time, you know, they put on the calendar where, hey, Tamar's going to be blown up here in one big, you know, puff. And uh, right before the, she's getting ready to get burned, she sends a message to Judah. And the messenger, when he comes, he, she goes, here, I want to give you a couple of things. And you take that back to Judah and you tell him these words. This is what she said. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. Judah looks at the signature ring. He looks at the staff. And all of a sudden, hey, let's not burn her. I think we should not burn her. She's not that bad. Let's give some grace. Why are people so judgmental? I mean, we love Tamar, don't we? Hey, take down the pole, get the gasoline out of the way. No burning of the stake today. No one's going to get burnt. Everybody just go home. Everybody love each other. Isn't it wonderful to be in love? And then the text says that Tamar is approached by Judah, and Judah falls on his knees and he says these words, Tamar, you are more righteous than me. I didn't do what I said I would do. You are a more righteous person than I am. And six months later, Tamar gives birth to a baby named Perez. And guess where Perez's name is located? In the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Now folks, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, Matthew, you should have skipped over that story. Like, why? Would you bring up Judah and Tamar and then even the baby, Paris? I mean, a father-in-law and a daughter-in-law and a he-guy and a woe and Perez. You know, it's just like, ah, it's creepy. Why didn't he just leave that out? I mean, he, let out, he left out other names of people. I mean, this is the kind of thing you hide. This is the kind of thing you bury. This is the kind of thing that nobody discovers unless... It's the whole point of the story. Well, the story for Judah is not over. Because about 20 years after he thinks that he'll never see his brother again, a famine hits their country. 20 years later. So Judah, being the leader, says... Hey guys, we're going to die if we don't get some food. So we need to go to Egypt to get some food. 
So they go to the person who holds the grain, the Egyptian who runs all the granary. And guess who that is? Joseph. And Joseph is the prime minister now of Egypt. He's not a little 16-year-old slave boy, but he is second in command of everything, and he controls all of the food uh, commodities. So Joseph's been in Egypt so long that he's no longer that little scrawny Jewish kid, but now he dresses like an Egyptian, he talks like an Egyptian, and he walks like an Egyptian. And when they get there and they stand before him, he recognizes them They don't recognize Him. And He messes with them. He says, now, are all of you here? All your brothers are like all of us except the youngest one, Benjamin. He said, well, I'm not going to sell you an ounce of grain until you go and get Him. And so all the brothers have to go back. And they have to face their father, Jacob, again. And they say, Jacob, Dad, they're not going to sell us any food unless we take Benjamin. And if you've already lost one son, can you imagine what it must have been like for Jacob to say, you can take him? But they take him. And they come back and they come into a room and Joseph finally looks out and he sees his brother Benjamin and all of his other brothers, even what they did. And he gets so emotional because for 20 years he was dead to his family. And he looks down and he sees them all. And he gets so emotional that he leaves the room and he starts weeping and crying. The scripture tells us that it could be heard throughout all of the capital of Egypt, because of the tears. And finally, he gets it back together, and he comes back out, and all the brothers are there, and they are fearful for this life. This is a powerful man. This is the president, the vice president of Egypt. He can do anything that he wants. And we don't know what he did, but he maybe took off his head covering or something, and he takes it off, and he looks at him, and he goes, some of the most powerful words in the entire Bible, I him, your brother Joseph. And I forgive you. I forgive you. And then the scripture goes on. Joseph says, As far as I am concerned, God turned into good what you meant for evil. For he brought me to this high position I have today so that I could, what's it say? Save the lives of many people. Almost 3,000 years before Jesus is born, we already have a Savior in the biblical story, and it's Joseph. Joseph says, I believe that I've come here to save many. I will save your life. I will save your family's life. I will save 
Pharaoh, I have saved the Egyptians. Jesus is the picture, or, or Judah, Joseph, let me get back here. A lot of J's today, okay? Joseph is the picture of a Savior. And then God looks down upon this whole story. And he says, I'll pick Judah. And he picks Judah to be the one in whom the Son of God is born through. So why? Why did Matthew do that? Because on the day that Judah faced his brother, Judah was a picture of you. Judah was a picture of me. And that's the whole story of Jesus and of Christmas. Judah was a picture of a person who deserved one thing, but he got something else. In fact, the whole point of why Judah is in the genealogy is this. God's grace is available to people who have not made themselves available to God. You see, folks, God's grace is available to people who have not made themselves available to God. God's forgiveness, His mercy, is available to people who never make themselves available to God. Because you've got to realize, Judah never confessed, he never apologized, and yet, at the pinnacle of the story, Joseph decides to do the opposite of what Judah deserves. God skipped Joseph, the righteous one, and God put the unrighteous one, Judah, in his story. And it's remarkable. But that's the point of Christmas. It's the point of the story of Jesus. You see, God never intended for people, regardless of what the sin is in their life, to say, I will never be able to be at peace with God because of what I've done. I'll never be able to be at peace with God because of what I've said. I'll never be able to be at peace with God because of the secret that I have. I'll never be able to be at peace with God because of my shame, because I hurt someone who I never took responsibility for. And since I can't change the past, then that must mean I cannot have access to God. But folks, from the very beginning, that has not been the plan. That is a man-made, self-righteous plan. But from the very beginning, from the beginning of history, God has been sending His mercy and grace to broken people and messed up people and people with a past and people with secrets and people who create a disappointment for other people. Those are the people that God has chosen. And at any point in their life, they can turn to Him. Because it's not based upon what they do, but it's based upon what Christ has done. And it is amazing. And that's your story. And that's my story. Matthew is trying to portray to us in this genealogy through all of these shady characters exactly the heart of God who would love someone like Judah. People are the point 
of the Christmas story. You are the point of the Christmas story. I am the point of the Christmas story. God came from heaven to earth to extend His hands of grace to people who don't deserve it. And God's grace is available to those of us who have never made ourselves available to God. And so, folks, I just don't want you to leave this place today without knowing the greatest learning of life. And it's this. It's not about what I've done. It's about what He has done on my behalf. It's not about what I've done. It's about what Jesus has done on my behalf. And when your worldview gets shaped that way, and when your God view gets shaped that way, and when your view of yourself comes to that point, that begins the change inside of us. I mean, it never change never begins like this. Well, here's what I've done, and this is what I've done. It always begins with, here's what He has done for me on my behalf. So I just want to close with one big question, and it's this. Do you have a secret? Do you have a secret? Did you marry him with the secret? Did you marry her with the secret? And it just gnaws at you and it eats at you? Are you the type of person who would say, you know what, I don't think I could ever have peace with God because of what I've done. Because of my past. I can't go back. I can't undo it. I can't unlive it. I can't pay for it. I can't take care of my mistakes. I can't forgive myself. If that's you, folks, I've got great news for you. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. The whole reason why God sent His one and only Son from heaven to earth was for the Judas of the world. And people like Tamar People like Matthew. Next week we'll look at another one. People like Rahab. And people like you. And people like me. That's the whole story of Christmas. Is that God sent His one and only Son to planet Earth so that you could give up on the doing of things and you could live in the reality that it's already been done for you. Do. No. Done. Yes. Let's stand for closing prayer.
Father, this may be the hardest lesson that any of us could ever learn. We think we have to do certain things, and if we do enough, that that gets us closer to you. And so, God, we just want to thank you this morning for the fact that you have already done it for us through your son, Jesus. God, would you break us of self-righteousness? And Father, for the man or the woman who keeps trying to get better, I pray that in this moment that they would see that that is self-righteousness. And it leads to nowhere good. And Father, for the man or the woman who deep in their heart, but they'd never say it out loud because it seems so arrogant. But deep in their heart, God, there, there is a place in which they really believe that they are better than them. God, I pray that you squeeze that out of them because that's self-righteousness. And it stands in the way of you introducing yourself for them knowing you. God, give us the grace and the wisdom to know how to approach you just as we are. God, thank you so much for this story because it's our story. We pray this in Jesus' name. I'll invite our prayer team to come up. And if you'd like prayer for anything, they're here. And if you're new here for the first time, stop by the Guest Connections table. we got a free gift for you. Have a great week. Know you're loved in this place.